this morning, I would, uh, I'm uh, really happy to speak about um, Donna and Sila, generosity and um, morality as the first two of the, of the paramis, continuing um, Martine's talk this morning on renunciation is as far as I got because I, I forgot how to access it. And so I was late in accessing it. So I saw, I, I at least saw the first part of renunciation. Thank you, Martine, for that beautiful talk on renunciation, which is not the easiest talk to give, I know. Um, but you made it come so alive with the uh, with its connection to to meditations. I was particularly happy to hear Martine speak about uh, bhavana cultivation. Um, as uh, I recognized the other day, as I was thinking cultivation, how that comes out of the agrarian society in which the, in which the Buddha was in which the Buddha lived. That he really spoke of. Uh, bhavana or cultivation bringing forth and in a way bringing forth from uh, from a seed bringing forth nutrition and beauty and all of the ways in which if we tend to the earth um, that it supports us as much as we support it and so speaking of dana and sila in the same way, in, in the same uh, stream as Martine was talking about it, in the sense of cultivation, Donna and Sila being the first of the of the ten paramis that we spoke briefly about yesterday. Uh, Donna being uh, translated mostly, most ubiquitously as generosity, and Sila as uh, morality. But I like to think about dana more in an active way, as giving. Uh, generosity feels like the word itself feels like a, a kind of state, which of course is beautiful if we are constantly in a state of generosity, constantly in a state of wanting to, um, to share, to give, to not hold, to not grasp, to not hold to ourselves, but actually to be a part of the universe, a part of what happens in, the, in this beautiful exchange we, we breathe in to, um, to, to, to nurture and nourish our bodies, and then we breathe out to be part of the whole universe and to give our, um, our contribution to the aliveness of the earth. And so every, in every moment, we are actually giving, uh, although it may feel uh, natural and uh, unconscious in a way, it's actually a very beautiful act of being part of the whole community of life, not just of humans, but of the plant life and the animal life and everything that the earth needs in order to sustain itself. And uh, Sila is not unlike Dana, because in a way, when we, when we behave morally, when we actually uh, take the precepts seriously, when we take the understanding that um, living morally is not just for ourselves alone, but actually because we have a, 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 a convention, a, an understanding with, all, with our fellow humans, that um, we live not, of course we live according to the local laws and to the national laws, but there's also a law, the laws, the, in, the innate laws of living together as a community of human beings and a community of aliveness, that we are, we have covenants in which we, um, we agree that we will behave in particular ways that not only benefit us, but actually benefit um, all of humanity, all of the environment in which we live. And of course, 
we do that um, not because we are compelled to, because we recognize our uh, connectedness, our interconnection, our interdependence with all other beings with, with, uh, with whom we occupy the small pl uh, spinning planet. So Donna and Sila become in some ways the underpinning of all of these 10 paramis that we will be talking about during this, during this very short week that we have together. So when we talk about cultivation, we're actually talking about um, the path that leads to awakening. And, but this week we're focusing on this list of the 10 paramis. Um, and obviously, as uh, Martine said yesterday, we're in three days, we won't feel all aspects are, are covered. And uh, it's, it's a challenge in a way to treat it with depth. But many of you are familiar with the word bodhisattva, which who is dedicated, a, a human being who is dedicated to the path of awakening and vows to act for the benefit of all beings. And I think in these COVID times, it's kind of clear how connected we are and how much what we do affects, uh, uh, potentially affects hundreds, perhaps thousands of people We've, we've sort of been brought to our knees uh, to understand this really basic law of being alive. So the Bodhisattva is dedicated to the path of awakening and actually does a makes a vow for the, uh, to act for the benefit of all beings. And it's a radical statement. And it essentially says that our deepest happiness our deepest happiness is connected with the happiness and the freedom of all beings. Uh, and these 10 qualities that we're talking about that make up the path of the Bodhisattva that fulfills the aspiration of awakening and, and allows us to live for the fulfillment of all beings are called the paramis, qualities that ennoble our hearts and our lives. Sometimes they're called perfections. And I'm not really that crazy about that translation. It's my least favorite because it feels like too high a bar. Who of us as human beings really can ever claim perfection? Maybe we ha we've experienced it from moment to moment, but we've, never, we've not experienced it as a, uh, as a sustaining or a, a, a constant um, uh, state because we, we always drop back into being just that little bit human. So all of these qualities I rather think of as uh, fruitions of insight and in my humble opinion, at least in my humble experience for me, uh, they're works in progress. So I'd like to just read for, for you uh, from, uh, from uh, the path of the Bodhisattva. Bodhisattva is one longing to live a noble life and liberation of the heart, commits themselves to the welfare of all beings, not tolerating the suffering of any living being, dedicated to the enduring happiness of all and holding all beings equally. They're generous to all so that they may be happy, not considering whether they are worthy or not. In a commitment to love and non-harming, they practice integrity. And in order to bring integrity to perfection, they train themselves in renunciation. In order to understand what is beneficial and what is harmful, they cultivate wisdom for the sake of the welfare and happiness of all. They constantly exert energy. Though heroic in their energy, they are nevertheless full of forbearance for the manifest failings of beings. They are truthful. Once they have promised to give or do something, they uphold their commitments. With unshakable resolution, they work for the welfare and happiness of all. 
with unshakable kindness, they are helpful to all. Pervaded with equanimity, they do not expect anything in return, but live with an unshakable freedom beyond the reach of all conditions. Ah, <sighs> sounds like a really high bar. But the essence of awakening, as the Buddha described, is uh, the is the essence and the heartwood of a noble life. We don't we don't in a way um, practice or live this life in order to improve ourselves or attain particular states or experiences or concentration, but we undertake the path for the unshakable liberation of the heart. And that is why uh, Martine and I felt it was really appropriate in this time of COVID to offer these teachings or offer these contemplations um, because we are in a moment where um, so much is confusing, uh, probably anxiety producing, and we know that what happens with anxiety is it leads to fear of what hasn't happened yet, but might be happening in the future. And we contemplate all of the ways in which we could be disastrous. But what these teachings are encouraging us to do is to, uh, in the contemplation of these qualities, bring a kind of dignity authenticity, integrity, and commission and compassion to our lives. And in a way, and sometimes the, the texts use the word torment as um, the way of describing what happens to a mind that is not, um, that does not have these attributes, but understanding it and its causes and knowing the end of torment or suffering and experiencing moment to moment the unbinding of the heart. And it's a beautiful um, aim, beautiful goal. And yet we live in our, own, um, in our own lives with all of its karma, all of its past, all of the ways in which we have ignorance, all of the ways in which we have wisdom. And so it's not a perfect life, but we try at least to live it as um, as in as much dignity, honesty, and um, care as we possibly can. So this morning, I really want to talk a little bit about um, the first two uh, paramis, Dana and Sila, because in a way, I think of them as the undergirding, the underpinning of the whole list. And as we said yesterday, we, are, we were really happy to, to land on, uh, on this plan because it feels so much as if contemplating these qualities and uh, having the aim to develop them as best we can in our own lives is a way, the way to fearlessness. That as these qualities grow in our lives, um, we find that there is less and less fear so the first of the the first of the paramis is is dana, giving, and um, I like to use the word giving rather than generosity because giving is such an active, uh, it's a gerund, it's an active way of expressing this quality of mind and heart. It actually expresses itself through activity, uh, not just through oh, sitting here thinking, oh, I'm, really, I'm going to really be a generous person, but actually seeing what's in front of us and responding accordingly. As I was contemplating this last night and this morning, I remembered um, a moment in my life when generosity really um, uh, exposed itself to me as, and in the understanding of its profound um, effect on one's life. So many years ago, when I was a quite young person, 
uh, I worked in the motion picture business and so traveled a lot. And um, there was one occasion which I, uh, I landed at JFK airport in New York. And um, as I was leaving with my bags, uh, this young couple, probably around the same age as I, approached me and they, um, they gave me a really uh, sad story that they had lost all of their money and that they, and I forget what, how they said they'd lost it, and um, that they needed money to get home to Long Island. Well, Long Island is not very far away from JFK, but it's a, but it's a distance depending on what town you live in. And um, I realized that my first reaction what if it isn't? And they really need a way of getting home. So I looked in my wallet, and of course, this is many years ago. So what I had in my wallet was $20, which is about what would get me to my ho own home, Manhattan. But I had a roommate, and I thought, when I get home, I will ring the doorbell, because in those days, we didn't have cell phones. And uh, my roommate will come down and pay, hopefully, come down and pay the, uh, the cab driver. So I gave them the $20 and I got into the cab and I told the cab driver, I would, um, I would, what, what the plan was. And he said, okay. So um, of course I was still wondering whether I'd been taken for a fool or that actually I had helped to save somebody's at least evening, if nothing else. And as I was thinking about that, I looked down at the seat next to me and there was a $20 bill. And I thought, well, there it is, right? The universe is giving me this amazing message that generosity does not, um, does not require me to feel taken. It doesn't uh, require me to feel unprotected but that in a way, the very act of giving produced um, an act of generosity from, uh, from the universe itself. And in a way that story has become my keystone whenever I'm approached by, whether it's by a, a charity or a person who is uh, homeless or, uh, or in distress. Um, and I and I've, I feel as if the uh, the act of generosity, the the actual physical act of giving, is a way of protection, not just for myself alone or for the person to whom I'm giving, but in a way it's putting out into the universe more of the understanding that we are connected, that someone else's uh, sorrow or pain or distress is not only theirs, but that we share it all. And certainly in this time of COVID, we are beginning to really understand that what we do has profound effects on, on the health of others, on the well-being of others, on the happiness of others. And isn't that what, as bodhisattvas, we actually need to be uh, constantly aware of constantly conscious of and the um and, and i've i've felt that that uh that story of giving and and actually receiving almost you know almost instantly almost immediately and not and i didn't find ten dollars on the seat i didn't find a hundred dollars on the seat i didn't find fifty dollars on the seat i found twenty dollars on the seat exactly what i had given and it's been, a, it's been a way of really realizing that these paramis, these purported ways of uh, being in the world actually brings fearlessness. That I know that I will be um, protected, guided, guarded, not because I'm a wonderful human being or a perfect human being, 
but because I'm a human being and that I am actually connected uh, inextricably from the, 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 living, the other living beings with whom I share this small planet, that we are all together and whatever we are um, thinking, acting, saying, doing has profound effects and those profound effects eventually return to us and, in, and isn't that what we mean when we talk about karma and sila the second um the second uh, parami is similar to this parami of giving sila is a way of giving to ourselves and actually giving to our fellow human beings it's not separate that when we speak and act in uh, in aligned ways, ways aligned with our humanity and the fact that we share this planet with however many billions there are um, now, I think it's six or seven, I've, I lose track, um, that our acts, not just of giving as, as we were talking about, but actually our acts, whether known or unknown by others, also have effects. And so when we talk about sila as um, speech and uh, sexuality, how we guard the ways we speak, the ways we interact with, um, with our partners and with people of the whatever gender we are um, uh, associating with in, in romantic ways, that we're careful about our acts, that, we're act, that we don't kill, we don't steal, we don't tell lies, we don't um, uh, um, commit adultery, we don't uh, betray through sexuality our, our fellow human beings. That all of these, the ways in which we um, use our bodies is uh, consonant and um, aligned with the well-being of all. And these two, uh, these, these, these two paramis, these two uh, ways of living, these two guidelines for living are for our own happiness as well as for the happiness of all. And so in many ways, we, um, we take precepts so that we, um, we remind ourselves of what it means to be a human being living on this planet, uh, contributing to the well-being, not just of ourselves and those who are close to us or those who are in our families or our, or our small circle of friends, but we begin to widen the circle so that every being is, is a relation. This idea that Martine was talking about this morning of cultivation of bhavana uh, is, is really what we do here as a group of people who are practicing this beautiful dharma, that we're cultivating the ground in which uh, not only ourselves and our small circle of friends and family can live fearlessly and safely and happily on this, on this planet, but that we widen our circle. We see that all of the ways in which we act, speak, um, and, uh, and relate affect the web. That the web, no matter where we are in it, and no matter what part of it we touch or um, activate, that it has wide-ranging uh, effects on the whole world. And so we're careful with our, with our behavior and the way in which we relate to, to others. So uh, I offer you these, uh, these first two paramis for your reflection and hope that it can guide you um, through this week that we have together. And we'll be returning possibly to some of these uh, 
some of these talks so that uh, we, by the time we are done, we will have a whole uh, a whole way of looking at the paramis together as not just a list of separate ways to behave or think, or but that uh, our minds will be shaped by them. And when our minds are shaped by them, how we act, how we behave with each other will also be shaped by them. And that will um, resonate into the whole wide world. And we can see a world in which even though we are um, physically quarantined or we know people who are uh, ill with this terrible disease and all of the ways in which it might bring up fear in our hearts that we have faith in this, in this universe and in the laws of the universe, that how we act, what we do, how we speak, how we relate to everyone will have a, a genuine and beneficial effect, not just in us and our close families, but on the whole world. So thank you so much for, for listening. Uh, I'd like to leave this, um, this half hour, this next half hour for any discussions, any questions, any thoughts that you may have about, um, about the meditation, about what we've been talking about, paramis, what's happening with you, uh, all is, everything is welcome, whatever, whatever is helpful and supportive for you. So um, can we, uh, perhaps the best would be to um, put whatever questions or discussions you would like to have in the, in the text. And when, uh, when we come to your question, if, if you'd like, we can um, unmute you and we can have a discussion. Can you say something about how to balance understanding the fear of political chaos in the world and maintaining equanimity? Hmm, that's a beautiful, it's a beautiful question. Thank you, Bryn. Ah, and it's it's so um, so clearly appropriate and. Um, And then says she's convinced that 99% of the people who approach me for money are scammers. It's hard to extend generosity. Okay. So we can, <laughs> we can take um, both of these. So the understanding of the fear of political chaos in the world and maintaining equanimity. So um, we're, we're going to talk more about equanimity as the day, as the week goes on. Um, I, I like to think of equanimity as uh, the, there's one, um, there's one translation of upeka, the Pali word for it, which is looking over. So in some ways, uh, I think equanimity comes not from disconnecting from the world, but actually having a wider view. So how do we, how do, how do we um, notice uh, through, through our, our meditation practice and through our um, training the mind to be mindful and aware of what's happening internally, to uh, notice when the mind is getting narrow, when it's getting small, when it's becoming fearful, and begin to see if we can see, a, begin to um, think about seeing a much wider view of what, is, of what is true in the world. What is true in the world right now is that uh, there's a, we're, we have a roiling planet because we have uh, COVID uh, as our kind of base where we're separate from each other, where we've been in some ways forced to, um, to at least physically separate. But there's also um, 
a togetherness that has happened because we're all having in some ways a common experience. We are not, we're not separate from each other. And the way I've been looking at it is I'm wondering always, how do I learn from this? What happens? What is happening that is teaching me about my connectedness in the, in the forced physical separation, in the required physical separation? How can I stay connected to the rest of the world? How can I see more deeply all of the ways in which um, cause and effect are, are happening all the time? And so I, I not only have a personal responsibility in how I respond and hopefully take care of the physical well-being of everybody else, but that I also begin to, ref I've, I've been reflecting as I sit here in my home alone, I, 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 I live alone, um, on, all, on what is happening in the universe and how, uh, how we have, we as human beings have uh, contributed to the conditions that allow this pandemic, especially in our country, in America, and I know most of you are not here in America, but I certainly, from the American point of view, I see how um, we, are, we are fractured. We are, in some ways, a, a quite selfish um, uh, civilization, if we, if, we, if we can call it that. We're a quite selfish country in that we, are, we have so uh, uplifted the emblematic uh, person who pulls themselves up by their own bootstraps and they make it on their own and they're the hero. And there is very little of the subtext of who is left behind, of who can be helped, of how can people be helped to have the uh, similar or uh, at least decent success so that everyone can have a decent life. So I begin to try to, as, as I said about equanimity, look over rather than look just from this point, from this one's point of view, but to see and then to see what the causes and conditions are because we know causes and conditions are constantly at work producing what is true, that there is lawfulness in the universe, right? The sun rises in the east and sets in the west every single day. <laughs> it never seems to dig digress from that. And so we're, 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 we're reminded it's, it's lawful. And so can we actually ascend in a way of seeing over uh, what is true and uh, not ignoring our own feelings or our own thoughts, but actually widening our view so that we begin to understand the laws that are at play. Uh, I'm convinced 99, this is from, I'm convinced 99% of the people who approach me for money are scammers. It's hard to extend generosity. So in every moment when I'm approached by anyone on the streets or any other place for money, um, I have vowed for myself that I will not discriminate between those who are scamming me and those who are not. I allow myself to be touched by the humility of someone that it takes for someone to, to beg. And, in, and I, it actually brings a tear to my eye, I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I, it feels uh, so poignant, especially in America, that we live in this amazingly uh, prosperous place and that there's so many people who are left behind. And so if I think 99% are actually needy, <laughs> so I'm just turning your, 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 your equation around and thinking, oh, 99% of them are needy and that 1% who is maybe scamming me, 
well, you know, good for them that they they got successful at something, right? So, um, so that I'm not turning my back on those who might really be in need of um, of help, or or maybe it's not even help, but just the understanding that someone else cares. And in our in my world, in our world. Uh, money is a way of showing that. And I, my mom used to go to, when she was alive, would go to uh, McDonald's or Burger King or one of those hamburger places because she knew, especially in the winter, because she knew that um, homeless people would be turned away if they went in for just to be, just to get warm. And so she would literally go to those places waiting for someone who looked homeless and who looked as if they would not be able to afford the meal or the drink or whatever it was to stay there and buy them a meal. And it became my kind of, um, uh, she became my, my, my example of how to live. Living with the care for others, I find to be the most joyful way to live. Because if I'm always thinking about myself and worrying about whether I'm being scammed, I'm, uh, I'm, um, I'm not expecting the highest of myself. I'm not expecting a way of connecting uh, with my own privilege, because I'm incredibly privileged in how I live, in how my life has unfolded, in all of the ways that I've benefited from people being generous to me. And so returning that um, makes it easy for me to extend, to, to extend my hand and to give. So I hope that that helps. So from, and I've had a long period of ill health and the need for major self-care which also feels selfish, but did ultimately expand my sense of generosity. Can you talk of relation between self-care and generosity? Mm. Thank you, Anne. Mm. So generosity doesn't mean only giving material goods or material or money but actually generosity is a much larger concept of uh, how we are within our own hearts. So we can, we can be generous with our time. We can be generous with money. We can be generous with our thoughts. We can be generous with our love. And when we are generous in those ways, I've found from my, in my own experience that generosity is, a, is really a balm to my own inner being. But self-care is, of course, our, uh, it's a primary responsibility. And so it's, one shouldn't feel guilty or, um, or worry about being selfish, because self-care is different than selfishness. Selfishness means that we want to take everything onto ourselves and nobody else should have anything. But self-care means that we know that this one is just as precious as all of the other beings with whom we occupy this planet. And so um, if, if we are not able to give to someone else, we can at least in our minds extend care, extend um, concern, extend friendliness, extend uh, all of the ways in which we reassure each other that we, we have love, that we deserve love. And so the first one who deserves love is, um, is, is, is this one, is you. I'm sorry, my phone's ringing. Um, so it will it will stop in a, in a couple of seconds, um, and it's a landline, so I can't turn it off like I can a cell phone. So, um, so self care and generosity 
are not um, antithetical. They are actually, uh, they're actually mutually beneficial because the more we care for ourselves, the more we have to give. So please feel that you, you have been given this mind, this heart and this body to take care of and that that's part of your duty. And then whatever energy or time or love or care you can share with others will come from a strong place when, we, when you take care of yourself. From, I'm thinking of monks and nuns in places like Tibet who are tortured sometimes to death. Are they protected spiritually, if not physically? Hmm. Well, I have, I visited Tibet many, many moons ago, probably a couple of decades ago. And I'm not sure what the conditions are now. Uh, I think that before I, before my husband and I visited, that there was torture. There are, there were terrible things that, that, that happened in the, in the monasteries and the nunneries. Um, so the spiritual protection, I think, is from our own sila. And I cannot imagine that, that most, if not all, of the nuns in Tibet and all of the other places where we are concerned about them uh, are not actually uh, practicing sila and uh, gaining the self-protection uh, from that conditions in which we live. And um, we, we, of course, send all of our wishes and our thoughts and, our, uh, what, and whatever material goods or material, in whatever material ways we can support beings such as that, um, that we know that, that practicing feels protective, is protective. Um, but we can't account for karma. We can't account for all of the, the complexity of karma and how things uh, come and go. So um, I'm not sure I, I can answer kind of universally this question, but I certainly feel from my own experience that I, I feel protected no matter where I go or what the circumstances are. And I recognize that I live in a, in a privileged place where I'm not constantly having to worry about being physically or spiritually um, attacked. Uh, so I think what we do and how we do it and how we think about people who are subjected to the, those kinds of conditions and how we send our love and our care and uh, whatever material uh, goods or, or money we can send to help um, is what we can do. And in our prayers and in our practice to actually think of people such as those and, um, and wish for their well-being and their, their safety. I regularly find myself in situations that feel like a choice between my well-being and my partner's. If I e.g., if I practice self-care, that directly impacts on him, and he has to look after our young children, which can be stressful. I wondered if you could speak to how we make choices like this. Mm. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is the is doing the best we can, and if we do the best we can, um, then we that's that's all we can do um and to have confidence in our practice and in our ability to um to be unselfish our ability to care for those close within our ambit and those outside of our ambit and those in medium in in and out of our ambit, um, to actually vow to ourselves 
and in a way it's 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 part of our sila uh to vow to ourselves to take care of as well as we can of each other and of course uh you know i remember in in the beginning when i first started practicing we used to talk all of, always talk about in an airplane which of course not much, most of us are not using these days but in an airplane, you know, when they give you the instructions about uh, uh, what happens if the if the masks if the oxygen masks drop, is to put it on yourself first before you help your child or your neighbor. And I, and it's a wonderful metaphor for the fact that if we're if we're not taking care of ourselves, then it's not possible for us to take care of anyone else. That our that everyone's well-being is interconnected and interdependent. So how do we how do we balance that? It's uh, how do we make choices like this? And it, my answer would be to really have confidence and faith in your uh, in your goodness, and uh, to to be to even ask the question. I think is is a wonderful indication of your goodness that you're not just saying, well, you know, my well-being is important, and, but that you're actually uh, uh, acknowledging the difficulty of the balance between uh, our own well-being and the well-being of all of the people around us. And of course, in these times, in these COVID times, um, we're concerned about millions of people. And we're also concerned with ourselves, as well as the partner next to us or the child who is dependent on us. And these are not always easy or simple, um, simple dilemmas. But I think, I think the most important thing is that we check in to see, am I being overly self-protective or am I being reasonable in what, what I know I need? And, uh, and if we can have faith and confidence in ourselves and in that, then we can also not second guess ourselves or take the feedback from our partner as to what they're feeling so that we're not just considering ourselves but we're also but we're we're discussing we're we're uh, we're recognizing everybody's needs and trying especially in these times when you know families are all together and there's so many different needs that people have to be clear and willing to speak explicitly about those needs and to see how you can uh, cue, cue the times that you take care of this and he takes care of that or she takes care of that um, so that and recognize that it's never going to be perfect that balance is something you know when I think of balance I think of uh, being on a ball where I'm constantly off balance and then coming back, constantly off balance and coming back. And equanimity, uh, coming back to the uh, previous question also, equanimity is like that. It's balance. And balance is never static. So how do we, how do we acknowledge that? How do we recognize that? And keep being interested in finding at least temporary balances with which everyone can uh, can feel maybe not completely satisfied, but somewhat satisfied um, and make that good enough so that it's, we know it's not going to be perfect. But can we have good enough as our, as, our, as our measuring stick? I hope you find that, that balance. Can you clarify the, where the perfections fit within the Eightfold Path, the Buddha's teaching? Sila, you mention a lot about sexuality and how we relate with our bodies. Is this the main part of Sila? No, it's it's one part of Sila. Um, mm. So Sila is also telling the truth. It's 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 being truthful, um, and truthfulness, of course, is one of the. Um, one of one of the topics we will get to this week also in our in our list of uh, paramis. It's also 
not um, not becoming intoxicated. It's uh, not taking what is not offered. Uh, so it's it's in, if I can make a general statement about sila, it is actually um, considering again, I guess the theme of this talk is becoming interconnectedness, but it's really considering our relationships our and our relations. And when, when I say relations, I mean the people in those relationships and making decisions about our own behavior that has, does no harm, ideally, and if we can't be completely ideal, at least has the least harm, because sometimes we get into um, uh, issues or decisions where we can't make a decision that will have absolutely no harm, but we can at least try to make a decision that has the least harm for everyone involved. So how do we speak? Do we tell the truth? How do we... Um, do we do if if we find something of someone else's do we appropriate it do we steal it or do we actually try to find the owner or do we leave it alone because we don't uh, we don't take what is not offered are we um, able to speak in a way that is truthful are we able to not uh, violate whatever vows we have uh, sexually with our partners, with our wives, husbands, um, or um, significant others. So Sila is, is, is in so many ways living um, in a way that uh, considers the well-being of others equally with ourselves. And we, before we act we're, or before we speak, we're considering how will the, what will, what will the effect be? And sometimes it's too fast, right? You're having a conversation with someone and something comes out of your mouth because you <clears throat> weren't able to take the time to consider it. And what you say or what you say is, it's how it's, it's a general way of living that is mindful of the fact that we're in society and we're in relation, in relation with others. So thank you so much for those beautiful, heartfelt and uh, thoughtful questions. And um, it's so lovely to see you all on my screen. And I, I'm looking forward again to seeing you later on this afternoon Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.